I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have a guest from the PGA Tour, um, Sean Martin, who is a special events editor. Um, You will see a lot of his writing on PGATour.com. Comes up with a lot of really interesting stories. And before that, worked at Golf Week. So a longtime golf scribe. Uh, Sean, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I, just, I hope I can represent the shield well and, and hopefully make us look good on, on the pod. Yeah, I, I mean, you, compared to me, it's not very hard. So you're, uh, you don't have uh, much competition. I'd love to uh, hear a little bit about how you got into the golf business and your background. Sure. Uh, I don't, I don't want to go too far back, but my dad was in the publishing industry, which meant uh, we had three books, so we read a ton. My parents read a ton. Uh, and actually, I lived in Connecticut, um, and then when we were when I was 11, sixth grade, we moved to California in the middle of the school year, uh, and my dad got a job at Disney, uh, not a goofy, but just in the offices, but the kids I happened to meet were into golf, uh, and I'm a huge advocate of like affordable golf, uh, good junior programs, because that's what kind of happened with me. Uh, they did this junior program, I think it was like 100 bucks for the summer, uh, you got three, I think for three months of group lessons. Uh, actually, Chris Zambri, who I think you've had on the pod, the USC coach, uh, would give some of those lessons in between weeks on the buy.com tour to make make the ends meet and make a little extra cash so you don't make a lot of money out there. Um, so we'd do group lessons. I think it was six bucks to play. Uh, it was a 5,000-yard golf course. So we would just hang out there all summer and just play forever and, you know, not fool around in the chipping green, the putting green. Uh, and I just got hooked. Um, I played baseball up until then and, eventually kind of quit it for golf. And, and so I think my love of reading, my love of golf, uh, I was like, you know, I want to write when I grow up and golf's the sport I know best. And I think even then I kind of recognized like, you know, everyone wants to be a football writer, basketball writer, baseball writer. I was like, not many people write about golf. So it's probably my easiest way to try to, you know, make something of it. And so, yeah, kind of the love of reading, love of golf, and I've tried to combine those for the last decade or so. That's cool. So did you get your start out of college at uh, Golf Week? Sort of. I worked uh, for like six months apiece at two. uh, One was a twice-weekly newspaper. I was the one-person sports department. Started that like my last semester of college and and overlapped a little bit. And then got a job at the Daily News down in Los Angeles, which is like the – it's kind of second to the L.A. Times. I worked there for like six to eight months and – the newspaper industry is just hard. You know, I was living at home. I had no benefits. Uh, and uh, luckily, the Golf Week opportunity came along right on then. Otherwise, I might have gone back to school or something because it's just tough sledding trying to make money, uh, you know, in journalism especially. And, and, yeah, I've been writing letters to Golf Week since college of, like, hey, I'd really love to intern there, you know, for years. And when they finally hired, 
uh, when they finally hired me, they told me that they'd been like for years in the office, like this kid won't shut up and stop sending us emails. And, uh, but luckily it paid off, but they would definitely give me a hard time about that. Yeah. Persistence pays off. You were there when they had the, uh, the awesome, I, I'll never forget. I used to always be excited for the golf week when they had that really big publication, you know, when it was like, I don't I trying to think like maybe 18 inches, uh, wide and you know they'd have pretty much every tournament score it's it's interesting to see how the print industry especially with golf weeks changed completely i mean that that company has taken a complete 180 in terms of you know their editorial um you know views and in you know what they cover yeah it's hard to see i mean a lot of my friends were the ones that were laid off this fall when they got bought out and um I'm glad to see they still do, you know, some of the college coverage and stuff, but uh, that was, I mean, when Golf World went down first, uh, we kind of, you know, it, it wasn't celebrating of like, oh, our competitor's dead. It's like, you know, it's not, it's not a good sign. And so, uh, yeah, Golf Week has changed a lot. I mean, it used to be a news, literally a newspaper size, like you said. And my first four years on Monday mornings, I was putting those scores together, which was kind of awesome because you just knew all these names. Like I remember Patrick Rogers used to kill it on the Future Collegians World Tour, and like <laughs> I remember that name. Then he went to Stanford. Now he's on tour, obviously. Or like uh, when Paige Sporanek started making it big, and I don't want to get into that whole thing. I'll let Tron handle that. But uh, when she made it big, I was like, I remember that name from I think also like the FCWT or something. Like she, it's just you see these weird names pop up. Uh, like I meet people in the industry, and like I can recall like. Oh yeah, you played in you know the Arizona Junior Golf Association or something because we spent literally four years just. I mean, we used to do everything from you know junior junior tours and state level to obviously every state amateur tournament, and so you would see all kinds of names. Um, so yeah. So <clears throat> curious, uh, given your background and just knowing all these names, who who who's the guy that you're most surprised hasn't made it yet, or is it didn't make it um it's funny because you do you know it was great i guess we started off covering junior golf so the name was back in the news a little bit after rory's no laying up pod but like i started in 06 and that year like philip francis killed junior golf he won uh i had a co-worker then eric soderstrom covered junior golf for me he works at titleist now but he dubbed it like the junior grand slam. He won the U S junior, uh, the Rolex tournament of champions, which is the AJGA's biggest event. I think he won one of his biggest boys events. Like he basically won the four biggest junior events that year. Um, he won a bunch of junior world titles. He'd been on like golf channel with Jim Flick when he was like six, like everything was pointed towards like Philip Francis making it. Um, and so it was funny when Rory mentioned him on there that, I mean, he's out of golf completely now, but, yeah, uh, I think even making it is kind of a funny because uh, what is making it like I've talked to Charles Howell before about and Charles is great he's like I'm the first person to admit that like I think I should have won more I thought I would have won more than I had now but at the same time like Charles is 37 he's going to play his 500th tour event this year he's never lost his card uh, but I know what you mean but I think like Patrick Cantlay obviously a lot has happened in the last couple years those stories came out when he came back at Pebble but Patrick Cantlay in 2011, I think people have forgotten, like, he was on that walk-up team with Jordan Spieth and, and all those guys, but Patrick Cantlay was the man on that team, and uh, it was just kind of cool because he just, he had an old-school teacher, um, he just, I don't know, Patrick Cantlay was a, some, a different kind of prospect, almost seemed like, like, 
we always talked about it, the ball just seemed really heavy on the face of this club, like with every shot from his putt to um, to full swing. I don't know if that's a good description, but it just it almost felt like the ball stayed on the face a little bit longer, and everything was just so solid. Um, and he seemed like he was going to do big things. A really smart kid, kind of a cool, you know, it's such a bomb and gouge era, and he does hit it far, but. He was such like a cerebral player in a sense and such a thinker that it was kind of cool to watch him play. Um, Peter Uline has had some injuries. Uh, he did the no-laying-up pod this week earlier, and he's playing a little bit better again. But I think you know Peter was number one amateur in the world, won the USAM, uh, was a great player. But I look too, I mean, I think Jamie Lovemark was so good in college. Uh, and he's on tour, obviously, but hasn't yeah. won yet. Another um, back injury, though. I mean, like Lovemark. Another got derailed both Cantley and Lovemark I mean those amateur careers were unbelievable I think people you know not not the common you know the everyday golf fan even doesn't pay attention much to college and amateur golf Lovemark and Cantley were out of this world good Uline was another you know just great amateur player but you know I think it shows that that next level it becomes more than just talent because at the amateur level I think you see where the talent you know but is you know the primary thing but then once you get to that pro level it becomes about how you can handle professional life how you handle travel you know what what's up in your head um and then you know finally it's like you know when you're really really great at golf it's it's hard to improve you know it's a lot easier to go from 85 to 75 than it is to go from 75 to 72. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, I think some people just extrapolate, like, think, oh, this kid is this good at 20. He's going to be even better at 25. And I think there's people who legitimately just play, played the best season of their career at 20 and were always cursed by those expectations. But I think, too, the biggest thing is mental. Like, the, the, I've been doing this for a while now, so, like, in 06, you know, Philip Francis is out there, but it was, like, Ricky... Uh, U-line, those were the big names. And, and so I've watched some players for the last 10 years or so kind of make that, just that move from junior to college to amateur to professional golf. And I just think, A, there's a lot of luck in not getting injured. Um, I think injuries are huge, and especially wrist injuries uh, can be very tough to come back from. Back injuries are obviously very hard to come back from. So staying healthy is a big one. I think the mental thing of just, you know, I mean, Jordan Spieth, obviously the amazing talent and so much of that is mental and it's just it's handling the pressure it's handling the expectations but also just you only get so many opportunities when you turn pro and you just have to make the most of them and play well at the right time and, and a lot of that's mental and you know if you get your seven sponsor invites but you don't play well in any of them then you're going to q school you're going to the web and you, know, you can be out there for a couple of years possibly and, and all of a sudden that just makes things hard so i think just so much of it is, is mental and and just handling that because there's so many good players physically obviously yeah i think that's a great point i mean you've got a guy like especially now the talent pool is is greater than ever and you've got guys like you know jordan niebrugge who you know all american won the u.s publinks um top 10 at the top 10 in a major and he didn't get through first stage of q school i mean it's it's crazy that that guy you know, doesn't have status anywhere after, you know, he, he finished in the top 10 in the Open Championship. And, um, you know, you've got other guys like Charlie Danielson, who didn't get his card, Robbie Shelton, who's, who's not playing on the web.com. And you've got all these, all these guys and, you know, 
frankly, the tour is, you know, one of the hardest to crack because, you know, there's only 50 spots every year that are up for grabs and those, and half of them go back to PGA tour players. Yeah, I think, and there's just so many, I mean, you've always got your elite players, but there's just so many guys that there's just too many guys that are good enough to be on the tour than there are spots you have. I mean, numbers a hundred to a thousand in the world or maybe 500, I don't know, are fairly comparable and especially on good weeks can contend in events. And so you just, I mean, it's, not that they're interchangeable faces, but you just have so many players who are capable um, and just so few spots that some guys obviously are going to miss out. And, and I think, too, it's hard when you're a young guy and you miss a Q school, especially if you do it a second year or a third year, that pressure just starts to mount so high because all of a sudden you're, you know, you're 25. You look at Wes Bryan, he missed the Q school his first four times. You know, good player, uh, was 26, no status. Uh, had never played a PGA Tour event or a web event in his first four years as a pro. Um, obviously, had the ability. It hasn't taken him long to show that. But um, it's just, it's. I think Q School especially, it's just so hard uh, when you start missing at that just because it can weigh on you and it can, it can be such so hard to deal with. Yeah, I think, I mean, Wes Bryan is an interesting story. I mean, I've I've heard that he started using this putting tool, but he went from you know being a, a really good putter to one of the best putters in the world, and it just shows you. I think you know you have to have something that you're really, really, really good at to be out there. I think you know that there's a lot of guys that are are really good at everything, but you have to have kind of almost a defining skill or just be a, extremely good at everything. I think like Kevin Kisner is a guy that pops into my head that he's a guy that's just like all around really good. I, I don't know what I would say he's, you know, great at, but he's above average in everything um, versus, you know, guys like, you know, where you've got your bombers that, you know, are, are hit it long and they overpower golf courses. And then you've got guys like Wes Bryan who putt, putt great. It's, it's, it's really an interesting thing when you look at guys making it young. Um, versus the guy that makes it at 30. Yeah, and I think, too, it's, just, it's versatility because you're, you're playing on different grasses, uh, you know, and you've got to be able to hang in there on days that are windy. Um, you've, you know, you're playing different courses, different types of courses. I think the big thing, too, and I think where some players maybe had better success in amateur golf than pro golf, I think is that versatility. You know, the big amateur events are all in the summer. Uh, for the most part, the weather's pretty good. Um, you know, if you're in college – I mean, some college teams travel nationally, but as budgets have kind of gotten smaller, they stay more locally. And so if you're a California kid, you'll compete mostly in California. But I think the biggest thing, too, is just versatility, uh, being able to work your ball, which can kind of be kind of a lost art nowadays. Everyone just wants to kill it. And, and um, I think that's really the big thing, too, because you're traveling. You're playing at different times. you got to get up early some days and play super early and have that 4 a.m. wake-up call for a 6.30 tee time in the summer. Um, you've got to be able to play on Bermuda because, you know, 10 events or so are in the Southeast and you got to be able to just deal with different conditions, whether it's rain or wind. Cause you can't just, especially if you're a rookie with limited starts, you can't just, uh, you know, I suck in the wind is windy say this round's a loss for me. You've got to be able to grind it out. So I definitely think also, I think just versatility is, is huge for playing professional golf versus playing amateur and college golf. Yeah. It's uh, especially as a rookie, you get, they get so few chances, you know, you, you look at what's happened with the fall series is, 
you know, a lot of veterans have seen how, how many points are available and you see not a lot of stars are there. So it's a, it's a great chance for them to get an early jump on the, on the FedEx cup points. And, you know, some of these kids, like, you know, I know like guy like Max Homa who, you know, got his card, but you know, low on priority, like, you know, you, you might not get, you might be making your like third start of the year PGA tour career at Pebble beach. You know, it, it's just, there aren't a lot of starts out there um, for these rookies. So they got to play well when they get the tran- chance. Yeah. One of the biggest things that I remember Dustin Johnson's college coach ever said to me was one of the biggest things he did in his career was he finished, I think like 10th at Sony and seventh uh, somewhere else pretty quick after that. And so it was right at the top of the reshuffle. And that was back when Sony was the first full field event of the year, but I mean, he just set himself up right away and now he can play the full year. Um, and that just made life so much easier for that rookie year. So again, playing well at the right time. I do think, um, you know, I think Doug Ferguson, the AP writer, has been around for a really long time, is really smart. And I think he did say uh, no one who's good enough uh, has never actually made it. You know, there's um, it, it is hard to do. Um, there's a lot of challenges, but I think the cream does rise eventually. And for whatever reason, and sometimes it's not even visibly evident because two guys look the same, you know, with everything the same skill-wise, but some guys for are better and i think eventually they just they do the cream rises and they kind of separate themselves from the others Mm -hmm. so you know with with covering golf um what you know kind of under the radar or young guy maybe a rookie or maybe he's not even at at the tour level yet are are you kind of most excited to see make it and and think could be a, a big time star um i'm excited to see what aaron wise does uh, the kid who won NCAAs last year at Oregon. Um, just kind of a kid who grew up as, from all accounts, a public course kid, uh, you know, just kind of made it on his own. Um, didn't play a ton of AJGA, but, you know, Casey Martin saw him and was big on him. And um, I'm excited to see what he does. He's gotten off to a pretty good start and, and played pretty well in his PGA Tour events. He's going to have to go the web route this year. Um, I, I think played pretty well uh, to start the year out there, but. Uh, I think, by all accounts, he's a pretty promising player. Did really well on PGA Tour Canada last year. So I think Wise is the one. Um, I'm excited to see what Curtis Luck does at Augusta, the kid that won the U.S. Amateur and the Asia Pacific. Uh, He's played pretty well in some pro events uh, that he's gotten to start from after winning the Amateur. So I think he's 2-1. He's going to turn pro after the Masters. Uh, So I think he could have the chance to just be a fun one to watch. Yeah, I think uh, Wise is star in the making you know that golf swing is beautiful and then you look at what he did last summer and kind of in the spring from NCAAs through that I mean I don't think he finished outside of the top 10 in any or top 15 in any PGA Tour Canada event which is crazy and uh you know I think he he's uh I think he's only 22 which is another thing you know he's really young so yeah he turned pro after his sophomore year uh-huh. um and so, and by all accounts, I think he was doing like a pre-law degree. Uh, so he's pursuing something pretty uh, academically heavy. He just kind of was like, hey, I know I want to do golf, and this is going to take a lot of my time academically. And so I know I want to do golf. I'm just going to commit to golf. So, um, yeah, yeah, it should be a good one to watch. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think Bo Hostler has a, has a chance to be really good, too. He's got to... Uh... He's got to get some status, but that he kind of got derailed by that shoulder injury, um, you know. And you know, like you said, he'll he'll make it there, but 
you know, he got a, he had a tough uh, start to his pro career. Yeah, definitely ill-timed, uh, inspired a rule change. I think, too, it makes me think of, I was listening to a Theo Epstein, a podcast with him, the Cubs GM, and he was talking about how they did all this uh, behavioral analysis of prospects before they decided to sign them or draft them. And he was talking about one of the hardest things for guys to deal with in making that transition is you go from being the big fish in the little pond of amateur golf. You know, everyone loves you, the media loves you, fans love you, everyone's telling you you're going to be the next best thing to becoming the small fish in the big pond. And now, when you go to a tour event and, you know, you might get some media coverage at your pro debut, that kind of stuff. But otherwise, you know, people don't really care that you're there. And so that, for a lot of guys, that's just so jarring that it's hard to overcome that because they feed off that kind of, you know, big fish. Uh, stature. So I thought that was really interesting too. And, and I think the same thing applies to golf, definitely, because guys on the PGA Tour don't care what you did in amateur golf because they probably did the exact same thing 10 years ago or, or even better. So that's a hard part too of it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we're also entering this era of parody in golf. Um, everybody wants to drive home this elite storyline and who's the big four, five, whatever it is, but the reality is is that like 1 through 30, 1 through 40 on the PGA Tour at this point is is pretty indistinguishable and I don't think you know I think that's the thing that I keep going back to when I think about the tour is how you know if if I told you you know if I listed off 30 names, you know, of you know the top 40 guys, I don't think you'd be surprised if they won a major like, you know, I mean, what do you think about a big picture uh, with all this young talent, the direction of the tour is going? Like, what's going to be a good season in, in 15 years? Like, two wins? I think, I mean, Justin's won three times this year, and I think that, um, you know, when Justin won the third time at Sony, Shane Bacon tweeted out something like, you know, I think I think he was going into the final round with a large lead, and Shane tweeted like it's crazy to think PJ's World player of the year is already been locked up almost in January and people hopped all over him of you don't know what's going to happen there's majors we played yada yada and it's definitely true Justin's going to have to do probably more uh to win PJ Tour player of the year because if a guy wins once in a major they'll probably favor the guy with the major if Justin doesn't win one himself but three wins is um three wins is a great season uh Jason Day had three wins last year Rory won twice uh you know, Jordan won. I think a multi-win season is a great year, um, especially if it's you know Dustin Johnson won Player of the Year last year with three wins. Now, granted, it was uh, a WGC, a major, and a FedEx Cup playoffs event, but three wins is three wins, and I think three wins is a great year. Uh, anything beyond that is really special. So, I mean, and I think Jordan Spieth has said it. 2015 is going to be looked back at as like a historically significant year. Like that might be the best year of his career, which is crazy to think about. Uh, being when he was 21 at the time, that's not a knock on him, but five wins, a major, the FedEx Cup, I mean, that's that's tough to beat. That's going to be one of the best years in a long time, and people wanted him to repeat all of a sudden. So I'm definitely with you. I think there are just, you know, there's only so many slots. Only one guy wins every week. Only 10 guys are, you know, some ties, finishing the top 10. And there's just so many guys capable of filling those spots. I think, again, kind of like what I said, like numbers 100 to 500 in the world ranking are, pretty interchangeable and they're just really separated by one or two good weeks and some weeks only one or two you know good shots and so i think it, it's cool to see that we have five or six players who right now have kind of separated themselves in the world ranking and are playing really well because people do want that star power but once you get beyond the top 10 i'd say 
I mean, it's pretty interchangeable. Uh, guys are, are pretty similar and really just separated by a couple of good shots here and there. Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm looking at the world rankings right now, and it's like if I told you that Matt Fitzpatrick won uh, is was going to w- win a major this year, you wouldn't be surprised, you know. But I feel like you know, 20 years ago, if I told you whoever the 30th ranked player in the world was was going to win a major, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty surprising. As a you know, and I think that's everybody's you know looking at uh, majors one, but like. The depth of talent in the, you know, Nicholas Palmer player era was nowhere near what it is now. And I think when you look at careers and evaluating careers post-Tiger, you know, we everybody needs to lower expectations because the money influx into the game has led to a lot more talent in the game. A lot more talent and a lot more knowledge about your games. I mean, you have kids now that, I mean, a kid, a high school kid nowadays could be on TrackMan from you know, 14 on, and he could, you know, depending on his parents' financial situation and level of commitment, he could have a biomechanical specialist working with him. He could have, you know, he could be going to TPI. Um, I think just with more money, and Kyle Porter wrote this really well, but anytime an industry has an influx of money, there's going to be an influx of investment in that um, industry to try to earn more of that money. And so you have, you know, tour players have such a deeper knowledge of their game um, from nutrition you know, you look at course management stuff, whether it's, uh, you know, Mark Brody or Scott Fawcett, um, you know, guys can get even course management dialed in. Whereas before, you know, a good golfer might know some stuff innately about course management that would separate him from, from separate him from a guy who maybe wasn't as smart. But now you can use analytics to, if you don't, if you're not a good course management guy yourself, you can hire a guy who can make you into a good course manager. Um, there's just all that more knowledge out there. And a lot of times that knowledge is innate uh, with the best players, but now you can kind of attribute it and give it to players who aren't as good um, just through technology. And I think Jack Nicholas had a great quote. He said, like, they used to do ex- exhibitions to, you know, make money on the side because the money wasn't that great. And he said, I would go to a course and, you know, one time out of 10, the club pro would beat me. Or I think he said he was even more than that. He was like, half the time the club pro might beat me if I had a bad day and the club pro had a good day. That's not happening nowadays. You take Jason Day out to a club. Uh, you can take him out to the guy who won, who won the Club Pro National Championship this year. That guy's not touching Jason Day. That guy's five shots at least uh, uh, behind him. So I, I disagree I with that. Great... I think, I well, think, I think, I think it, it was... if Day doesn't play his best, that guy, that I mean, the guy that won the Club Pro Championship, that guy's a stick and probably was a guy that just didn't have the brakes go right when he tried to play pro golf. I mean, like that guy is a, is probably a web.com level player, you know, a guy that wins the club pro championship. I mean, if it's just the, the random local pro, I would agree, but you know, that, that club pro championship is, is no, I mean, it's not, it's not a PGA tour event, but those guys are, are sticks, you know? No. Um, and that might have been overstated. Maybe five strokes. That's 20 strokes a tournament. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. But I did pull up. The guy who won it last year was Rich Barbarian. Uh, I interviewed him at the Chambers Bay U.S. Open, actually, for a story. I always like to do the story on just the random guys who qualify and what that week is like. Uh, mm-hmm. He's played four tour events this season based on the exemption uh, he got for winning winning the club. He's, he's missed three cuts. Now, granted, one was the U.S. Open, one was the PGA. T66 of Pebble Beach and missed the cut at Genesis. So, um, 
five shots might have been a little much. I'll, I'll accept that. But the <laughs> point being, just the, the point of the quote is that the gap between, you know, your club pro to your top-level player is much larger than it was in Jack's day. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. It's um, the best players in the world are just unbelievably talented. I mean, any, anybody that even is, has status on web.com is unbelievably talented. How close do you think the web.com tour is to the European tour? You know, outside of their big stars, I, I, I think about this a lot is like, you know, how close is the web.com tour to being the second best tour on, in, in the world? Oof, you're going to get me in, uh, get me in trouble here. We've already been down this road, I think, what, 2008 or so, I think. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that one. Um, I think that, they, I mean, the problem is that when you say European tour, there's a wide disparity in mm-hmm. events. Um, you know, you're talking Abu Dhabi, or you're talking the Madeira Islands Open. Um, I think the web is strong. Uh, it's full of guys who have played on the PGA Tour, who have won on the PGA Tour. Um, but I think... I mean, even just a little bit out of respect to the European Tour, I think I would still give it that number two spot because there are still guys. I mean, Tyrrell Hatton plays almost all of his golf on the European Tour. He'll come to Florida for the next couple of months and, and play in the U.S. between Honda and players. But, you know, Tyrrell Hatton, your Matt Fitzpatrick, so those guys, Thomas yeah. Peters, um, they still play mostly in Europe. They'll come to the U.S. at the right seasons of the time when there's WGCs and majors and stuff. But I do think the European Tour, I would still – uh, give it the number two slot um, just because it is it's a I mean I don't know it's the European tour I think it is number two. that's not a knock on the web I think mm-hmm. that's just the fact of the matter there are still some European and I think you're seeing a little bit more European players staying there uh, instead of moving to Orlando so I think the web is strong it definitely is strong but the European tour I think is still the European tour and deserves some yeah, I, I didn't mean in terms of like the stars. I'm talking more of your 75 to 125 guys. Right, and I think those are. I would say that's pretty comparable, definitely. Yeah, it, um, it's. it's cl- I think it's close across the board too. I think you know, I, it, what's Webb's one through fifty versus the tours one twenty five through, or one you know, let's say seventy five through one twenty five. Yeah, and that's one of the great debates. I think that was actually one of the things they thought would be cool about the Web.com Tour Finals is you throw those guys in the mix against each other. And I would love, I'm not sworn to do it, but I would love like Mark Brody to take those numbers. And, you know, you've got three years now, I think, of history there, four years. And so you could use that um, in a way, I think, to kind of answer that question or at least see what the difference is. Um, I think now that was one of the fun parts of the Web.com Tour Finals. You could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with you getting to cover golf for a long time, what are, what are some of your favorite uh, courses that the tour goes to every year? Um, you know, for whatever reasons, if it's you know the leaderboards or you know, what have you kind of noticed with courses and the uh, and the leaderboards that come from them? Yeah, I think I love Riviera. Um, I mean, obviously we just played there, but I think it's just so it's such a classic place and it's such an easy. There's a lot of courses that are tough walks. Uh, just there's these big, open, modern courses through housing development. Riviera is awesome in just that you can um, – it's just all right there in that canyon, and it's such a cool little walk. It's a classic place, um, and it does produce a good leaderboard, I think, for that reason. It's a shot maker's course. Um, 
I'm always partial to the ocean, so I haven't actually covered Pebble, but I love, I think Monterey is my favorite place in the world, and we went on our honeymoon there, so we've got to say Pebble Beach, just because I'm not going to get into the whole Saturday thing. I, get, I think I'll leave that to Tron. You should have Tron in as a follow-up to kind of clean up my mess and tie in my loose ends, but um, Pebble on Sunday, I think, just with those views is, is always awesome. Um, I think it's just, I think the nice thing has been being able to go to courses. I think when you're actually able to walk a course and see how it flows and just kind of put everything in context of where everything is, it's so different than television. Um, it, you know, TV is almost like 18 separate corridors that have no relation to each other. It's like almost like 18 different studios or sound stages where action happens, but it's hard to tie them all together. Um, I was thinking about that. We were at Sawgrass the other day, just playing the golf course and there's no one around and like, you just forget that it's just a golf course versus like a place we have tournaments. But I think that's always been the coolest part. I'm trying to go down the schedule uh, and give you some good ones. I think Valspar obviously is very popular for good reason. Uh, the course where they have the Nash play, Austin Country Club, those holes on the water are really fun. People are out on their boats uh, watching the, the action. They're cool, fun holes. Uh, you got to drive over part four and a reach world part five. Um, and there's so much elevation change on the front nine there. Uh, I'm not just saying it's some partial, but TTD Sawgrass is really cool um, for a lot of reasons. I, the more I play it and the more I, I know about it and read about it, the more I, I come to respect that place. Uh, uh, um, Jack's Place in Columbus is great, but I think those would really top the list uh, as far as places I've been, definitely. Yeah, it's... Um... I think obviously Riv and Pebble are in their own stratosphere and everything I've heard about Monterey Peninsula. Um, but I feel like, you know, the, the Copperhead course, I, I think there's, it's interesting how the tour has gotten in the golf courses because, you know, there's this adage that length is what they need to make things tougher. I, I almost disagree with it. I think with the what happened with a lot of these modern courses that were built for tour events is that it, they promote robot golf where you know it's hit it far and hit it in the fairway and hit it close versus a place like Riviera where it's more about you know I don't think this year was a great representation because of how soft it was but it it's more about being hitting it on a particular side of a fairway on a given day to access a certain pin because of the way the course is built and just a little bit more strategic than say a course like I just played golf club of Houston. I mean, golf club of Houston hit it down this fairway, hit it close to the pin. And that's, that's the name of the game. Um, versus you play Riviera, it's hit it down the right side of the fairway so I can get to this back left pin. But then the next day it's hit it down the left side of the fairway so I can get to this front right pin. Um, and I think that's, that's the kind of trend the tour needs to go to get a little bit more diversity on the leaderboard. And I think that's what we've seen this year is that a lot of these places lack the strategic, um, factor. And it, it, if it's about just hitting it far and straight, these young guys are going to, are going to win a lot because that's what they've been trained to do. And, uh, since, you know, with the TrackMan era and technology. No, definitely. I think part of it, too, I think a lot of the classic older clubs don't want to host a tour event. Um, there's so much that's involved with doing it, opening a golf course for a week, uh, you know, changing the agronomy of the golf course, getting it set up for a tour event. Um, and then also just the room. It's not the same as a major, but you need the room for hospitality and all other stuff. You have to be okay with 40,000 people trouncing your golf course for a week and having it be closed for 
a week before that. And so I think that's part of the challenge. You know, you look at, I mean, I've, the more I've played golf courses and different places, the more you realize like a lot of these great, great golf courses uh, are some that you've never even heard of because they don't want to be heard of because they, they like to lay low. Like uh, we were on Sea Island and we were going to Frederica for a, a shoot and like the opening to Frederica is like, Literally, if, you're, if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to find it. Uh, just because like this little opening uh, in the bushes, and then finally the guard tower is like a hundred yards back in the in the trees. And you know, you look at Seminole. You know, Seminole loved the pro member. The pros come out there; they love it. It's an amazing golf course. But you know, Seminole would have no interest in uh, in hosting a, a tour event. So that's part of the challenge. But I definitely agree with you that I think with the technology, um, especially that you know, at the same time, I think strategy even on the best design course gets taken out a little bit when guys can hit an eight iron from the rough, you know, way up in the air, stop it. And so in a sense, you have a pin tucked over a bunker and it almost doesn't matter if, you know, you miss it on the wrong side of the fairway, a guy can just recover by hitting a moonshot eight iron. that's going to stop when it hits the green. And so I think that's part of it too. It's just that technology has taken the strategy out of a lot of even great golf courses. And, and I think too, just, you know, Maybe getting them firmer and faster is the answer. Obviously, weather sometimes is different, but I definitely think firm and fast brings strategy into it um, as well. And so anytime you can get that going, I don't know how much control or how much the tour uh, has a say in that. You know, I don't know if people want 15 under winning. I always kind of like 8 to 10, but, you know, maybe getting golf courses firmer and faster would do the trick a little bit. Yeah, I, I think firm and fast golf is the ultimate defense. Um you know, it, it, with these guys, if it's soft, it's just going to be a birdie fest. Um, but, you know, if it rains, and then it, it completely changes the dynamic of the golf course. Um, you look at a lot of guys like, you know, they, they feast on, you know, soft golf courses. You can look at their career, and most of their wins come when there's a lot of rain. Um, and then you look at, you know, when courses play firm and fast, and it's a completely different leaderboard. Um so I think, you know, that's something that obviously can help, but it's it's very hard to do because of weather. Um, so Definitely. you mentioned uh, the uh, sawgrass. Uh, what do you think about the uh, renovations and, you know, for the uh, upcoming tournament in 2017? Um, there's a lot of cool minor renovations. I mean, obviously 12 is going to be the big story. Um, and 12 is an interesting hole. Uh, it's – I'm – I honestly have no idea uh, how it's going to play. Um, part of me could see guys kind of tearing it up and it becoming almost too easy. Part of me could see it being too difficult and it might need to be softened in some spots. A lot of obviously it's got to deal with kind of the firmness of it. But 12 is going to be very interesting to watch and get a lot of focus. But even like a lot of the holes that border kind of that pine straw area, I mean, they've taken almost all the rough out. There's a little maybe 10 foot, 5 foot wide strip of rough so now tee shots can bound into the pine straw so you'll have more guys hitting out of pine straw um on like 11 the par 5 and some other places they've taken out rough and put in um uh just shaved areas partly like so for 11 for example there's water behind the green um and the hope is that now that rough is gone if it's firm and a guy you know hits towards the left side away from the bunker away from the water that that ball can bounce through into the back water and make you think more on the second shot at that hole. Um, There's a lot of cool subtleties that I think hopefully are translated well on television and and explained well. Um, 
12 is obviously going to be the big one. I think six and seven are two really cool holes that they took out a huge uh, earth kind of hill. I don't. It was like a dirt mound between them, and now they've made it just one large lake. And uh, if you didn't know what it looked like before, uh, you wouldn't know how cool it looks now. It looks really cool. Um, they're two kind of holes that don't get a lot of attention, but I think the idea was that hopefully that change would, would get some more attention for them. But, um, I mean, the, the big holes, 16, 17, 18, are pretty much the same, but just a lot of cool, uh, cool, subtle things that hopefully will add some more excitement. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it might not be noticeable on TV, but if it changes the way the guys play the hole, I mean, that's that's a big, big change. You know, these little changes can make big, uh, impacts on the tournament and, you know, who wins. Yeah. My dream scenario is 11 is one of those places where they've got pine straw on the right and they took the rough out. And I'm curious to see, but I'm hoping that leads to us seeing guys going for that green, which has a bunker running all down the right side of the, of the green and then water before that, that I'm hoping we're seeing guys trying to hit shots out of the pine straw going for 11 into that kind of stuff. So hopefully it produces those kinds of shots. Yeah. It's uh, you know, speaking of a course that, you know, has kind of wall to wall fairway and pine straw. I, I know both of us have played blue Jack. I wanted to get your quick thoughts on what you thought of uh, tiger woods as an architect. Um, I just, I mean, first and foremost, I just love the whole, I hate the word vibe, but I love the whole vibe of the place. Um, it's a very, you know, it's, it's an expensive club to join. It's a, it's a very well-heeled membership, but you would have no idea going there. Um, you know, we played, we played in carts, which wasn't my first preference, but you know, we played with like, the kid literally played barefoot cause he was just, he likes to play that way. Just to kind of hang out. Um, he, we had, uh, we had a Bluetooth speaker. He was playing music. Uh, I know people differ on that, but that was totally fine. The putty green there is probably what, 250 yards long. And yeah. So me and my buddy took some time hitting, you know, well, maybe 150 yards, whatever, but hitting long putts across it, uh, you know, good food. Um, it's just so rela- – they've got the target on the drive range and try to hit punch shots at. I mean, just – it's a it's a great club with a great golf course, but they've got the little nine-hole pitch and putt course too. Like, we played that after we played 18. Just that whole – it's so relaxed. Uh, one of the guys had his shirt untucked. It wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, it's just – I mean, even public courses, I think, can apply that to themselves. They might not have the quality of golf course Tiger's not going to build one for them, but that was such a – it was so refreshing to just kind of come and relax, and you didn't have to worry, like, oh, I have my hat on. Should I take it off? Can I leave it on? Um, can we just change our shoes in the parking lot, or is that going to get us kicked out? What if I check Twitter when I'm, you know, in the third fairway? That kind of, It's just – it was so nice and relaxing that it made it really fun. And then you've got a golf course that, kind of like you said, wall-to-wall fairways um, – it's relaxing to play. Uh, it's, you know, you're not looking for balls. I was reading Alistair McKenzie's Spirit of St. Andrews right now, and he said that, I forget what it was, basically railing on long grass and just how looking for lost balls just is one of the worst parts of golf. And so the whole day, um, I wish I could play it again and really get the, you know, a better feel for the course. Um, but the whole day, it was just fun which is what golf is supposed to be. And, and I think they did a great job in, in doing that. Yeah. It's a place that you just kind of want to hang out at, which is, you know, what golf needs more of, um, you know, a place that you really want to go, 
and whether it's just sit on the range and hit balls at that target, they have music playing at the range. Um, but then the golf course, I thought, you know, it's, it's great. You know, you, you, I don't think we spend any time looking for golf balls. Um, and you know, I think he, what he did was really interesting. I think the more I've thought about it, the more bullish I am as on Tiger as a designer, just because I think about his playing career and, you know, the guy was the ultimate tactician. He knew exactly where he wanted to hit the ball. And then he also knew if I'm going to miss, I need to miss it here. And I think he can take that knowledge and apply it to golf courses so well. I, I felt like when I looked at the fairway, there was a bunker right where I really wanted to hit the ball every time. And, yeah. you know, there's only 40 bunkers on the golf course. And, that you know, it, it he did such a nice job with, like, the subtle subtleties where you have these, you know, you have – uneven lies in the fairway which you know give the expert player kind of fit and makes you uncomfortable because you're hitting you know choke down wedges off of side hill lies into you know little pins but you know for the average golfer they're they're in the fairway they just feel like you know they they're doing great because they have a shot at the green every hole you know yeah i think uneven lies and you don't see it on tv because tv just flattens everything out but uh, I think uneven lies are just such an awesome challenge. I think I texted you after I played TBC, but like we played 16, the par five, and there's water on the right. Um, you've got the spectator mounds on the left, but basically see is that huge lake on the right. Um, and all you, and you've got the tree on the left side. All you really want to do if you're going four and two is hit a high cut. Um, you know, start it left, and if it stays left, you're safe. But the ball was above my feet, and I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking this three wood out to the right and trusting it to draw back. Like I just. I don't have the guts to do that. So I tried to hit a cut off a ball above my feet, and, of course, the heel grabs, and it goes left, and I'm kind of over in the rough with no shot because the pin's behind a bunker. And I mean, I just chip on and make a, a simple five. But, like, just you'll never see that on TV, but that's such a cool thing. And then, like you said, like the 10 handicapper, he's just pumped. He's in the fairway and not looking for his golf ball. Yeah. And then, of course, we have to talk about, like, the fruit stand. at the <laughs> That place uh, at Blue Jack is amazing, but... That might be another conversation. Yeah, the the whole comfort stations were quite spectacular. I mean, the towels at the turn. I mean, it, it's a cool spot. I uh, I might dive in and write about five thousand words on it this afternoon. So this could get get me warmed up for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, if you you know changing kind of gears back, uh, if you were a say a common fan, like what, what are your five tour events that you would recommend or a couple tour events? If I was going to travel to go see the tour somewhere, where would you say you should go here? I mean, are we talking major or non-major? Let's just say non-major. I think that, you know, the majors are so overly, you know, filled. Let's say just regular tour events. Sure. I mean, I would definitely, yeah, some of I'd say got the one and open in championship, but I mean, I think, you know, probably get accused for being a shill, but I do think the players is really cool. Um, it's just, I mean, the golf course was built for spectators. He's uh, got the big mounds. It's designed in, like, these little kind of hubs so you can basically see a bunch of holes at once without walking a ton if you're not someone who wants to walk five miles in 90-degree weather. Um, I think that one's definitely up there. I think you definitely want to go to places that are kind of accepted locally and people turn out. Um, you know, they've got a good large crowd. I think, you know, Bay Hill, I think 
Orlando loves that tournament, and so it, it's fun that there's a lot of people out there. Um, I think I love the match play. It's in Austin. I'm just going down the schedule. I, I don't have my top five in front of me, but um, I think match play is cool in that you can actually just watch two guys go head-to-head, and they play pretty quick because they're in a twosome. And, um, so I think watching watching match play, I think, is always just kind of fun. I've only been to the Nelson. I haven't been to Colonial, but Dallas and Fort Worth turn out definitely. Um, if you want to see some great architecture, which I'm sure some people listen to this do, I think Greenbrier is a great one. Uh, tough to get to. <laughs> Good luck with that. But Greenbrier and also Wyndham uh, over in Greensboro. I think that's another – you're talking about golf courses where kind of their strategy and old style. Greenbrier and Wyndham definitely are, are up there. Um, and then um, I always go to – I always end up going to the BMW for coverage. Uh, and I think just, you know, it's not the same Western Open, but it's Chicago and the Western Golf Association still runs it. And so um, they just – they love that event. It's, it's really well done. But I'd say those are up there. I mean – it's hard. I, for me, I'm more. I think some people want to go to big rowdy events. They got to say Phoenix and Honda and uh, Dallas. I'm. That's not my scene per se. Uh, so I'm more of a maybe. You know, like Torrey Pines, just to go and just hang out and, and watch, or um, Riviera for that reason. I think are great ones to watch. But I mean, obviously, you got to say Phoenix if you're looking for just zaniness. I think you know. I think uh, the New Orleans has a chance with this new format to be like an awesome because like you talk about things to do outside of you know watching golf that place is you know you got great food great nightlife there's a cool little golf course that you could uh stay in stay down in uh the french quarter and take the trolley out to it's it i think oh, I that, is that ottoman park yeah it, i i didn't even realize i went there last uh fall with my fiance and a, a couple another couple and we went just to walk in Audubon, Audubon Park and somebody had told me about it like a long time ago and then all of a sudden I just saw this golf course and I was looking at it and I was like wow it, it looks pretty decent and then sure enough like I'm looking in the confidential guide Doke's book and it's one of the gourmet choices so it's a place I, I think if I'm not mistaken isn't it kind of like Winter Park uh it's like really short it's like 5,000 yards or something but they just put a bunch of money into it and redid it to kind of yep. like with winter park to make it a fun little challenge it's a par 62 it's got a cool story it was actually the um it was built for the world fair in like 1890 or something so it was long back then yeah and um and it's been around forever but it you know it looks really interesting and cool i mean winter park is so so awesome those these types of places where are so important to, I mean, you said it and I grew up playing at a Muni golf course. Like, I mean, like you got to have places where these kids can play if you want, you know, the future of golf to be healthy and then, and the places need to be interesting, cool little places that you want to spend all day at. Definitely. And I mean, I grew up, I mean, the golf course I grew up at, it was 5,000 yards long, but like, like it attracted such an audience or such a group of people. Like, I mean, Chris Como who teaches Tiger, works in the pro shop when I worked in the cart barn. Uh, Chris Zambri, who was playing on the Buy.com tour, now coaches USC, one of the best teams in the country, was giving lessons there. Uh, I think, I mean, that was our home course for my high school team, and I think three of us played golf in Division One, and another kid could have, but just had no interest, but he had offers. And, I mean, playing a 5,000-yard junkie, I mean, not junkie, but 5,000-yard golf course is obviously not a real test. And then, I mean, I played Winter Park a ton in Orlando. I mean, I was working and traveling a lot, but... I mean, that was the place I probably played the most out of all the courses in Orlando because 
if it was Saturday and you only had two hours to drive there, play, and get back, like you'd go do it in Winter Park and kind of, you know, a couple of places you could hit driver, but it's the most part you don't, but it gets your taste of golf and at least you're out there hitting a ball and, you know, you're not going to the range and just kind of smacking balls. You're actually trying to score and stuff like that. So I'm all for little golf courses of any kind. Yeah, I, I, I spent, I just got to play nine at Winter Park, but I want to go back and like, I want to play a couple different loops of it and do like different things like where I only, I only play with like a seven iron or, or less just to see. Cause then I think you, all of a sudden you have these longer shots and the, and this renovation was great. What they did around on and around the greens. It's like all of a sudden when you're having longer shots into these greens, they're going to be, you know, it's not going to be, you know, a pushover where you can drive half the par fours. I think, that's uh, people are always afraid to take clubs out of the bag, but you know, and it, it, I think it's part of the USGA's doing where score is always the defining factor. It, it doesn't really matter. Like if you're looking to get better, you know, play different ways and put yourself in uncomfortable situations because usually when you're under the gun, those uncomfortable situations are what kind of do you in. Yeah, I think, or even just take out the even numbered irons, draw numbered irons in your bag, so that you, you know have to create shots, things like that, or just, those are, I mean, those are hard to do because I think everyone's so score obsessed, but I think that definitely, especially if you're trying to get better, I think those are, and they're just fun. I mean, I think, uh, you know, golf can get repetitive in a sense, and so if you've got a, you know, you take out the odd clubs, you know, the seven irons, you got to kind of craft a little fade six iron. That's always a little more fun than just blasting stock seven iron, so... Yeah, I uh, I agree. It's there's uh, it's it all goes back to why every round needs to be documented for your handicap. It, it's there's all kinds of uh, issues in the game, but I I see a lot of them stem from one uh, organization. So the um, let's get into a few kind of uh, Twitter questions we got here. Um, so. This one sounds like kind of an inside joke here, and I'd, I'd love to hear the backstory behind it. Ask him about okay. the state of the game since last year's domination at Uncle Remus. Sure. So uh, DJ Pajowski and myself, we've become pretty good friends with the Guthries, Zach and Luke. Uh, Luke obviously plays on the Web.com Tour, playing the PJ Tour uh, for a few years. Uh, Zach is his older brother and his caddy, and was the assistant coach at Illinois. Um which is where I first met him, uh, assistant coach at Illinois when Zach or when Luke was there. Uh, they've moved down to Jacksonville, both of them. And we've just become pretty good friends over the years. And so I was in, DJ and I were both in Zach's wedding uh, in November, and Luke got married in December. So they did a joint bachelor party to uh, up to Lake Oconee, which is where Reynolds Plantation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were probably like 10 of us. And Zach and Luke grew up at public golf courses in Quincy, Illinois. So they always loved... Uh, and, uh, we play this place, Jacksonville Beach Golf Club, which golf course, which is literally like it costs fifteen dollars on weekends. Um, but we take we'll play with them because they just it takes them back to their roots, I think. But so we did the bachelor party there. We played one round at a nice golf course on the lake that was a little more expensive, and then we we're like we found this place, Uncle Remus, like in the sticks. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Remus was like this. It sounded like basically it was one of those old cartoon characters. It's probably wouldn't be acceptable nowadays but you're in the sticks of georgia and i think the author was from the town and so there's like a museum for it i don't know but 
it's this nine-hole golf course you can play twice from two sets of tees. It's like 6,300 yards. Uh, I think it was like 10 bucks. Um, like, we were the only people out there. We just showed up. The pro shop was in a house, and, like, I don't know. So we made it Ryder Cup style, Zach's uh, groomsman versus Luke's. And we did matches, and I don't play a whole lot anymore. And I mean, I played in college. That was 14 years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm like a five now. Uh, I usually find it by like the 15th hole, but um, we just had a baby, so that doesn't help either. But I just, I think because we were having fun and fooling around, I played a guy, and I think I was giving him like three shots. We were supposed to be pretty close. Uh, and so we played the front nine, kind of short. The par fives are, you know, reachable and stuff. And I think I shoot like two under, and I'm like five up. And so we're like, well, I'm just going to start like trying a little bit more. And I ended up shooting 68 uh, at Uncle Remus and beating the guy like, I think it was like, nine and seven I Tiger Woods and Steven named him uh and so it was just this like just became this inside joke because the go- I can't I don't even, I can't do the golf course justice uh it was it was amazing um but yeah that's just a, a joke there I think I think Luke shot 65 or something fortunately so I didn't beat Luke but uh it's just we we have a thing we just love just bad I don't want to say bad we just love lower class golf courses I think they're fun um, because you can play in a t-shirt, you know, and basketball shorts if you want, things like that. So I think, I think that's where it comes from. And it's just funny that I, I think the one thing we love about Luke and Zach is like, I mean, they can play TPC if they want, but they love coming out to like $10 golf courses and, and playing these places with us. So, yeah. That's, that's awesome. You know, it's the, uh, some of the best golf courses is you know people get so obsessed with conditioning and, and immaculate but you can find these like gems everywhere where you can tell like if it had a big budget that it would be a really really cool place to play golf but you know it might not be in the best shape but the bones are all there yeah and i think right now all i look for and i think dj is kind of the same is if it's affordable and it's pretty quick uh that's i mean i care way more about that than the niceness of the golf course now granted some nice courses are quick because uh, not a lot of people out there because they're exclusive, but I just want to play fast and cheap right now. So that was perfect for that. Uncle Remus, just uh, it's a gem. You, you heard it? Check it out. Maybe maybe link to it in the newsletter or something so people can see it. It's it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it after we get done with this. Um, so Ryan Hennessy wants to wants to know what's the best place uh, that you've eaten at on your on all your travels. This place, uh, this place is going to appeal to a lot of people, but last week at Honda, we found like a, a really good vegan place, and I'm not vegan, but I think because there's, you can't just rely on meat to make it taste good, um, you have to use a lot of flavors and make it very flavorful, so I'm all about the vegan restaurants. So we actually, this place, Christopher's Kitchen at Honda, last week was amazing. Um, man, I don't remember names specifically. Um, I love... Tory Pines, um, just Tory Pines up on the cliffs, obviously, and kind of the, you see a little bit of, of a town behind that third hole, the downhill part three, called La Jolla Cove. Uh, that was probably my favorite place to visit. Um, on tour, my wife and I stayed there um, for Tory Pines, and it's just you can walk to a bunch of different places. Uh, they've got the oceans right there, and they've got all these sea lions, like dozens of them, just barking and whatnot, and um, a lot of cool, little, funky, little California places. That place is up there. I think 
I don't know about eating. My favorite place to stay during the tour year is in the La Jolla Cove. It's a place called La Jolla Inn. They call it European style, uh, which just means the rooms are really small. But it's awesome. It's a, it's very affordable for where you are, and it's a, such a cool location by the ocean. Yeah, it's that's uh, as I look out my window at like a gray, dreary Chicago day and think about that place, I wonder what the hell I'm doing here. <laughs> I have a photo on my Instagram. The place is literally like 110 bucks a night. And I have a photo on my Instagram. You can see the ocean from the balcony of the room. So it's like, um, the room is small. It's not fancy, but, uh, you, but you get a real key for the room too, which is awesome. It's not some like plastic card. It's like a legitimate key, uh, which you don't get a lot of those anymore. No, no. It's, uh, that's a, it's a good spot to hang out though. La Jolla. I say, I miss, uh, I miss California. I live there in another life and, I gotta go back there. Um, so let's get you out on uh, of this on some kind of quick hitter questions. Uh, we'll start. Uh, favorite architect? Um, I got to be beginning, uh, kind of a beginner architecture guy. Uh, I'm gonna go Seth Rayner because I love the look. It's just so. You can just see, you can tell it's a Seth Rainer course and just the geometry of it, everything, the sharp edges and just kind of the, like, it just looks old school before they had the equipment to make like crazy greens. Like, okay, we're going to have a pretty square green here. Those kind of things are sharp edges going to bunkers. Um, I love flat bunkers with a grass face kind of thing. So I, I just love the geometry of it and just kind of the sharp angles. And to me, that looks really cool. Um, I, I, I think you're playing to your audience. I'm a huge Seth Rainer no, fan. No, I know. I've <laughs> Hopefully Zach listening, you know, can talk about it. But, uh, and I like, I think Pete Dye gets a bad rap and I think he might've gotten, maybe he got cranky in his old age. I don't know. But like, to me, TPC, like TPC is part amusement park. They give tours to the clubhouse and people just want to go out and see 17 and go out on a cart ride and see it. But like, there's a lot of subtlety to that golf course. And, you know, growing up where I've grown up, like I'm not used to playing a nice golf course where every time you play it, you find out something new. I'm used to playing 6,500 yard public courses that there's really no strategy to them per se. They're just kind of there. Um, so I've loved reading a lot about Pete Dye and what he's trying to do. And then just playing stadium a fair amount. And each time you play, it's just kind of seeing little things. Like I talked about with the undulation, the fairway and just those little kind of subtle things. Everyone just thinks he's a guy with a bunch of water hazards and bulkheads. And it's not really that. Yeah, I think he's like the most underappreciated architect. Everybody likes to like rail on him for these penal designs, but like he was the guy that like changed the whole industry. Um, you look at the you know Doak and studied under him. Bill Coor studied under him, but Die was the first guy that brought strategy back into architecture. And you know, like when you're a when you're changing the perception of an industry, like you can't make you probably couldn't do everything that you wanted to do. Um, and I think he got, he got, uh, you know, he had a lot of projects where like PGA West, he was told to build the hardest golf course he possibly could. So, you know, that's not like you, you're an architect or only architect only has so much rain over a project, you know, especially then. Yeah. And and I would love to play some more McKenzie. Uh, anyone listening, get me on Cypress point. I'll gladly take that. Um, I played Augusta. (laughs) But just reading Spirit of St. Andrews, like his line that the best hazard is put exactly where a good player intends to hit it. It's basically kind of talking about bunkers in the middle of wide fairways. Um, I love that move because it is such a 
most people probably hate it because obviously you pipe it down the middle and it goes in the bunker. But I mean, to have to think about, you know, going around over short of left, right. I mean, that's the definition of thinking. So I love what McKenzie has to say about architecture uh, in that book. And that's what I'm saying with like robot golf, you know, like these tight fairways, it's just, it's hit the fairway. If there's water on both sides, these two are guys, it's just like, Oh, I just have to hit it straight. But you put a fairway or a bunker in the middle of the fairway, all of a sudden they have to decide if they want to hit it left or right. And just putting something that another factor in their mind where they have to make another decision is spectacular architecture because that's what you need to do with great players is that you constantly have to make them think about, you know, the golf course. Yeah, I mean, Rustic Canyon opened about 15 minutes from where I lived when I was in probably my junior year of high school. And we played it a couple of times. I think we were just too stupid to know what it was. And so it was like 35 bucks and it's like wide open. You're like, oh, this golf course is fairways 100 yards wide. This is so stupid. But now I look back and I'm like, the second hole was two fairways joined together, mm-hmm. OB on the left, uh, a little pot bunker on what would be the right side of the fairway. And But if you miss right, now you've got a long iron over bunker and the green runs away from you. If you challenge the OB, you can just, you've got open grass in front of the green. You can run the shot up and then you're hitting obviously into the green that goes back to front. And it's like now looking back at it 15 years later, I'm like, Oh, you got to challenge the left side to, you know, the OB to have a good angle. Back then we were just like, this is so stupid. I could hit it anywhere and it's in play. And I think that's why what you're doing with architecture and stuff will make golf so much more interesting because people, I think they just look at rankings and like, Oh, this is a good golf course. Cause this company says it is, or, this company is a bad, or this is a bad golf course. But People don't appreciate why it's good, why it's bad, why a golf course that maybe they've never heard of is a good golf course. And I don't know. I think that uh, I wish I wish I could go back to Rustic Canyon and play it now. I would probably love it. Uh, back then, I just totally was like, oh, this is just so pointless. But yeah, so I think that's why I think that's why architecture and a knowledge of it, at least just even a basic one, makes golf so much better and so much more fun. Yeah, it takes. It's another thing that takes score out of the out of play. Like you know, you don't if you're if you're out there to experience the golf course. You know, if you have a bad day or a good day, it doesn't really affect your overall experience. Um, but that's, that's the one thing I'm still trying to learn is how to like experience the golf course. I used to love covering amateur golf because we'd go to the U.S. Amateur on a great golf course, and you could just walk down the middle of the fairway and watch people play, and so you got a great idea of the golf course. I think when I play, I still get too my own game centric and I'm just looking at the shot that I've got instead of the whole golf course. I think you just got to look around, you know, just try and be more yeah. observant. I, I, I get, I get the boost of, I take like 3000 pictures. So I walk like three golf courses when I play and, you know, go and kind of look at different angles. But that, I think that's the big thing is, you know, just kind of pay attention and think about what your other playing competitors have, for shots and you know how it's different if you're on one side versus the other and you know how different maybe maybe the day's flag positions right in the middle of the green but think about what it would be like if that pins back left and where you want to be and you know how the bunker it, it, you know it, as you start to get going I think it gets a lot easier and you know you start to kind of compute everything um sure so if you, if you could, uh, having been in the golf industry for a, a long time now, if you could have any other job, what would it be in the golf industry? You could have, you could be a tour player, you could be an architect, you could be, 
You could be whatever you want in the golf industry. Which which uh, job would you? Wow. Uh, I mean, does TV announcer count? I don't know. Is that yeah. still media? That's a, that's, uh, you could say I'd have my job, too. You know, your your own you know, job. Uh, I like your job. Um, I think I like that. I mean, you're, you're your own boss. You're probably just sitting there in your boxes right now. I don't want to picture it. Hopefully not. But, like, I'm, I, I got I dressed today. Okay, good. Um, but I think I wouldn't want to play uh, too stressful, too much travel. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to be an architect. So much that goes into that beyond just drawing holes. Um, I mean, if I had the aptitude to be an architect, sure, I'd love to be an architect. But taking my current skill set, I don't, I don't know if that would work. Um, but I think I think what you're doing is, and I'm not kissing your butt here, uh, but I think what you're doing is great. Just the being your own boss, creating something, um, I think – I would probably, if I knew it would make money, I could feed my wife and my son, probably write books. Um, I love just diving into stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think books either, you have to be either super famous and they're going to pay you a big advance. Uh, You have to have a big enough ego where all the hours are worth it just to have your name on a book. Or you just have to be super, super, super passionate about it. It's the number one priority in your life. And uh, I'm not famous. Uh, I, I don't think my ego is big enough. And I don't, uh, it's not my number one priority uh, in my life because I've got a family. So I, I would love to write a book. I'm not going to anytime soon, but I think that would be my dream. Writing a book to me is kind of crazy because, like, I feel like with the way my brain works, like, I'd be, like, halfway through and have put, like, months of work into something and then decide in my head that it wasn't a good idea. For sure. I'm sure every author goes through that. Um, I, I just think that's from a purely just straightforward standpoint like it's a ton of work it's devoting your life to it for a year or more and i don't unless it hits it big which unfortunately a ton of golf books usually don't unless they're just kind of watered just unless they're stuff for the mass audience but it's a ton of work for not a lot of money so i look at the formula that way and i'm like ah i'm good yeah maybe one day maybe we just got to build up your ego a little bit more yeah, there we go. Well, I don't know if my wife and my kid would like that. That wouldn't be spending time with them. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what's uh what's who's the best interview you've had? Best interview I've had. Huh. Um. I wish I I haven't had like a lot of the let's just sit down and have dinner two hours to cover everything. Um. Man, I'm trying to. Gosh, that's. A, I'll have to tweet at you later and think about that one. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoy Russell Knox. Uh, he's smart. Uh, he's very humble. Um, he gives good answers. Um, I appreciate guys. He's one of those guys you can tell tries. Like sometimes the question doesn't come out perfectly, and you can tell they're like, I don't know what the heck you're asking, but I'm going to try to make it work for you. Or if they do get it, they're like, I'm still going to try to give you the best answer possible, as far as answer possible. Uh, Russell Knox is one of those guys. Um, he's always been great to me. Um, I think Spieth is a great interview. Um, I thought Ricky this week uh, did a great job in the press room. He was making fun of himself, made fun of his height. He said his short driver probably looks long because he's short. And then when someone asked him what it would mean to take home the trophy, he said it would join a small collection. Uh, so I felt like Ricky was really relaxed and, and kind of funny and, and gave good answers. But uh, I'm not to tweet at you uh, Think about that one some more. Yeah, it's uh, self-deprecation is a great, great skill. You know, you gotta 
best people can self-deprecate, you know? And, Definitely. Uh, Just can't take yourself too seriously. For sure. Um, and then, so if, uh, if we're going to link to one of your stories, what, what story is your favorite one that everyone should read that's listened this far, if anybody's still listening? If anyone's still listening, we should put a code word at the end, um, and then they can win a prize if they can tweet it. Um, probably my Brian Brothers piece. Uh, I kind of tweeted it this week. I'm like, yeah, they did the trick shots. Like, that's cool. Uh, but there's so much more to it. Like, um, they grew up in rural South Carolina. Their dad was this golf nut who started golf in high school and played at South Carolina because he just basically was obsessed with it. And then they moved uh, to this old little house with an acre of property and he turned it into this like uh makeshift golf academy in the backyard and everyone thinks oh they grew up in a golf academy that's being loaded but it wasn't like that it was just this like homemade sort of golf academy and he gives lessons he's a pga pro um they were both really good in college george is actually even better than than wesley um but like i said before wesley missed two school the first three or four times he was broke uh there was a time in college he shot 101 in a tournament because he Wesley's always kind of been more of the miss a lot of fairways, scramble really well guy. Um, and so I think there's just so much more to that story than, yeah, they did trick shots. Like, even they both did the trick shots because they were literally broke, and they were George was living at home, and Wesley just moved out with his wife, but they were paying uh, the mortgage with her student loans, which isn't a good situation to be in. So, like, I think I, that one was just fun. I've known them for a long time. We did an instructional article with them and Mike Bender when I was at Golf Week back in, like, 07. Um so that was a fun one. That was a long one. Uh, and then I wrote about Tiger, if you want a Tiger article, about in 92 of Riviera, which that was fun just to see uh, just what things were like back then as far as, I mean, Tiger just switched to Persimmon and uh, just the reaction to, to people of Tiger Woods coming out on tour. He had this thing called the Tiger Claw that he did when he made birdie putts where he basically made a clawing motion, which I just wish that had survived past the week. Um, I, think, I think it was an early attempt at branding. Yeah, uh, but probably those two. Probably the Bryan brothers would be the that one. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think uh, it's it's interesting. Those Brian and the Bryan brothers, they they get so much hype, and I think that you know the trick shots got them so much notoriety that there's almost like a, a backlash because of that, and it's not really fair. But you know, I you know, it's there's so many other guys on the Web.com tour, or, you know, like that would love to have be afforded the opportunities that you know George gets but that's uh that's life it's not all fair you know you got to make uh yeah. make your own brand i was thinking about that with ricky like everyone acts like media attention and i'm in the media so i'm to blame but media attention is like this meritocracy where now granted you do wish that people who have success get the attention they deserve and that sometimes we can go too far and just pay attention to stuff that's silly and has no has no merit to it over stuff that's really important but like media attention is not this meritocracy it's you know uh i always tell people like the story man does job goes home to his family um and eats dinner with his wife like that's a really good way to live your life if if you're married like that's how i do it i try to you know that's a good thing but that's not going to be a headline story um and so you know when there's characters on the pga tour whether it's ricky or wesley bryan like they're going to get more attention because they're unique um, Zach Blair, uh, you know, you've had him on here multiple times. Zach gets a ton of attention uh, because he's got such a great 
interest in something that's really interesting and communicates it so well and shares it with the fans so well. And I mean, he hasn't won on tour, but he gets a lot of media attention because he's different. There's a hundred and you know, 56 guys out there and there's a lot of similarities. Um, and so I think when guys are different to get media attention and, and that's not a, it's not their fault, but B like just because you get a lot of media attention and you don't win as much as people think you should doesn't mean you have to rip a guy. I don't know. So that's my Ricky Fowler take, I guess. Yeah, I think Ricky, I think what Ricky does better than anybody, you know, is he markets himself. And I think where so much of the backlash comes from is when, you know, they, when you look at golf's biggest earners and you see a guy, you know, especially younger in his career, he had never won who's raking in $20 million a year in advertising and endorsements. And it's like, you know, but he earns that money by, you know, doing a great job promoting his personal brand, you know? Yeah, and Ricky, I think Nolan up tweeted it too. Ricky's 28. He's got four tour wins and two really good uh, European tour wins that are probably about as strong as a lot of PJ Tour events. So really, he's got six wins. Like, it's a good, and he won a playoff event. And he won a Players' Championship. Wells Fargo's a good event. Uh, Honda, I mean, he's won good Abu events at golf courses. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, yeah, Jordan Spieth has nine wins at whatever, 14 years old. But, I mean, Ricky's career is off to a really good start. We, like, judge these guys in the middle of their career like that's the last word. Like, Ricky Fowler's going to retire at 50 with four PGA Tour victories. When four PGA Tour victories at 28 probably is a sign that he's going to have a a good, solid career. But he's in the middle of it. We don't know what the next half of this is going to look like. You know, he wins two majors next year, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, it turns out he was actually – pretty good and did what we thought he should you know i don't know so i think it's so hard judging guys in the middle of their career because so much can change so quickly i think that people he does everything so well too you know he's long he's got a great he's you know when his when he's putting well he's you know spectacular putter and you know everything he does looks really good it's you know i think the other aspect of it is like there's only four majors every year right and Everyone always asks me, oh, is this person going to win a major this year? And I'm like, honestly, they're probably not. The odds are against them. It's so like what we talked about. Under. It's like what we talked about earlier is that there's four majors and, you know, there's conceivably, you know, 30 to 50 guys on, on in professional golf that if you said to me, hey, this guy's going to win a major this year, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I could, that could happen. Like Danny Willett last year is a perfect example. Nobody was picking Danny Willett, but... I wasn't at all surprised that the guy won. He's, you know, he's former number one amateur player in the world, had won a ton on the European tour. Like that is, that's not surprising. He drives it well. He puts well, like, you know, that it, and it's like, you look at, you know, there's only four majors. So, and when 50 guys can win, your chances are pretty small. Right. So I, I think mean, what Phil won his first, Phil won his first major at 34 and I've got five majors and, Henrich just won his first major. I mean, it happens. It takes a while. And, yeah, again, just because there's only four of them a year. I mean, you can pick four random events. You could say, like, is Ricky going to win Travelers, uh, Genesis? You know, pick four random events. Like, the odds are no. Like, he's not going to win those events just because pick any four events and then especially take them on the hardest golf courses against the toughest field. And, like, the odds are against it because it's just so hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, and then, you know, like he won the players. That's, that's a major, that's the best field in golf. Amen. You're singing my, uh, tune. I'll probably get a raise for you saying that. Yeah. I, I feel dirty. I'm going to have to take a shower. 
<laughs> but um, the uh, but yeah, I mean the play, the fact that the players, you know, compare like you know their their field's stronger than the U.S. Open field, but it's not a major. It's like well, it's uh, but hey, it is what it is. Um, so hey, I appreciate you coming on. I uh, don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm sure that you guys got a lot of stuff going on over there at uh, PGA Tour HQ, and uh, don't want to get in trouble with any of your bosses. Sure. I usually just sit next to DJ and we just talk about things on Twitter and then do some work. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a different different life. I got I got to I got to get down for this year's players though for sure. And uh, thanks. I'll tell you, I mean, I never went to the players before I started working here, uh, and it's uh, it's an underrated event. Uh, it's it's cool. So I highly recommend it. I'll be here. Uh, we're trying to we're trying to rally some people get here tron might be here kyle porter might be here so we're uh you never know yeah i'll i'll get out of my uh my cave here i just gotta look at the dates but i think i'll probably uh probably probably take the plunge and uh head down there sounds good all right man well uh be well and uh thanks for all the time sounds good thank you all right bye-bye